Our God, what a special time of our worship service where I have the privilege of standing behind the sacred desk and we as as a congregation of believers can unfold your truth. We can unpack what you mean by what you say on the pages of Holy Scripture knowing that it's inspired by you, it's inerrant, it is sufficient for equipping us to lead lives to the glory of our God that we might be adequate through Christ and through your truth. Expose that truth to our hearts this morning. Might we understand it and obey it to the glory of our great King in whose name we ask it. Amen. You don't have to visit too many churches to be brought face to face with the epidemic of unqualified church leadership. People in positions of leadership that should not be there, many pastors, elders, deacons, who have no business doing what they are doing. God's standards for leadership in the church are supremely high. That is a basic and extremely crucial truth that many evangelical churches either outright deny or ignore to their shame. The New Testament standards are often lowered. They are selectively applied or simply disregarded. That's the issue today, and that has always been a very real issue in the church of Jesus Christ. In the letter to a young presbyter named Nepotian, dated 394 A.D., Jerome, the early church father, rebuked the churches of his day many years ago for their own hypocrisy and showing more concern for the appearance of their church buildings more than careful selection of the leaders that would lead them. I quote, Many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittered with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid, unquote. A similar error has been repeated time and time, week after week, year after year throughout church history. Multitudes of churches, even in our day and age, seem oblivious to the biblical requirements for their spiritual leaders as well as to the need of the congregation to properly examine every candidate for leadership in light of biblical standards. That they be tested, 1 Timothy 3.10. We could highlight many experiences that you and I have lived through Without biblically qualified leaders, churches lack the protection that God's structure puts in place in the first place. Churches will lack direction and initiative to move forward. So we must follow biblical guidelines even as they are outlined. We got through one verse in Titus 1 last week. The unequivocal command Paul gave Titus on the Isle of Crete that every church throughout every village and every city comply with the head of the church to have a plurality of godly elders that shepherd them. And as Titus was commanded in that day of how God leads His church, he was not left to his own ingenuity, his own creative juices. God unfolds for us qualifications of elders in verses 6-9 through of our text before us. It is tragic but undeniable. Many, many church problems can be traced to unqualified leadership. Thus a sermon on a text teaching such as what we are looking at today is the quintessential necessity of qualified leadership. Such a sermon as we will experience today together 
needs to be often repeated in our churches. Unbiblical forms of governance that have not complied with Titus' mandate. Unqualified masses. It's an issue today. It's always been a very real issue. It's better that there be positions left vacant than to be filled with unqualified leaders. It's better for churches to want and to pray for what they don't have and entrust themselves to the sovereign Lord of His church than to have what they shouldn't have in the first place, unqualified leaders. The sad reality is that man focuses on skill, a CEO or entrepreneur, a people person in relationships. They focus on skill rather than godly character, which is where God places His emphasis. Men whom He's called, men whom He's qualified, and that the church in faithfulness is to recognize and affirm. Would you notice the verses that follow the command? We started in Titus 1.5 last week, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. But whom should he appoint? Namely, verse 6, if any man's above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Church, may I urge you to sell out to the biblical model that is so different from corporate America. Not a church structure or a church polity or even church leadership that has a hierarchy of dictator from the top down, but servant-led, shepherding in the truth, conforming to the truth with godly character. The unequivocal requirement of church leadership is that they be blameless, above reproach, in their marital, social, business, and spiritual lives. Would you notice simply... The clear requirement and then the distinguishment of that requirement. As we look at this vast list, this specific list, this sufficient list that God has given, it's essentially the same as 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 that you could compare this afternoon in your studies. Some tweaks, some changes. But the underlying command, the requirement of those that would lead God's people is that they be, according to the text, irreproachable, above reproach, blameless. In its strictest definition, this means one not having been arraigned before a judge. It's got the sense of being without charge, without accusation, and thus irreproachable. Notice that he does not say that uh, he must be one that hasn't suffered through any false accusations because to lead God's people is to be faced with onslaught and conflict and accusations of this, that, and the other thing constantly. The front men always bear the brunt. But when he is accused, it doesn't stick. Though ministry is fraught with many and sundry accusations, any of those do not stick to these men. If he's assaulted by an untruth, it doesn't pull him into question because the basic tenor, the habits of his life, are above reproach. This is not a reference to sinless perfection, but speaking to the issue that there is no sinful defect that would disqualify him or the group of them as models of moral and spiritual character. So as Titus 
ties into his purpose that came by apostolic mandate in verse 5. Titus wasn't left to his own devices or his own creative ingenuity for staffing. He was to seek God's face for God's requirement for God's work done God's way. To achieve God's blessing and God's glory. We must follow biblical criteria to judge and to validate or invalidate any candidate of those who would lead God's people. It is not open to opinion, it is not open to speculation, but an objective set of standards. This requirement in verse 6 serves as the leading requirement, the leading qualification that gathers up the intent of everything else to follow. So basically, we're looking at one requirement of overseers, bishops, of elders, episcopos, of those that would shepherd or pastor God's people. You'll notice that he says it once, verse 6. He says it again in verse 7, that the overseer must be above reproach. No room to scribble, scribble outside the blocks. Leave that for the two-year-old. Two Those that will be faithful biblical ministries, this is a must. The Greek word order here is essential. In our English language, where's the must? It is the very first word of verse number 7 in the original language. To place it up front in the sentence to make emphatic the obligatory nature of blamelessness, of these qualifications. That if men do not have these qualifications, leave the office vacant. Because God will lead His church through qualified men, not unqualified men. It's God's mandate. No tweaking, no adjustments, no substitutions, no deletions. Notice a couple of features of this requirement. There are many that we could make note of. I'll mention just two. Notice the change in person. In adult Sunday school, I thought that in our, series, our ongoing series on what makes up healthy churches, well, no better time than the present to study biblical eldership. And so we'd mentioned in adult, the adult class this morning, anytime eldership is referred to in the New Testament, we're talking about a plurality of godly men. We're not talking about a front man, pastor-pope dictator model that is present in many churches of our day. We're talking about these men, a council of eldership when we're talking about elders. It's used plural in the New Testament. However, you'll notice that in these instructions to Titus, we're looking to the individual man to up the ante on the seriousness of these qualifications. Every man must look at his own life. Lest the limelight be shared with other guys he serves with, you brother, look at your life before you ever look at others. Though the New Testament constantly bears weight to the fact of a council model of elders, not a hierarchy of pastor-pope dictator from the top down as we see modeled around us, elders do serve together. But when their life is looked at, it is looked at individually. Do you fulfill the requirements, the qualifications that God gives of how He leads through His men. Each man will give an account. Yes, Titus was to appoint elders in the plural, verse 5, but here you'll notice, if any, if a man is above reproach, any man, It's used in this sense to describe the state in which every one of us, beloved, if you name the name of Christ, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, the emphasis in Scripture is that though all believers will stand before God, we'll stand individually to give an account at Christ's return. It's also used of those who serve and lead the church as deacons in 1 Timothy 3.10. And it's used of the grouping of elders 
verses 6 and 7 in the text before us. So notice that though elders serve together in the ministry, each one is going to give an account of his life, if any man. Let me note secondly, and a close related issue, what is reiterated in verse 7. The requirement is above reproach, verse 6. Verse 7, overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. You notice that qualification. They're just stewards. A steward originally referred to the manager of a household or family estate. It's a metaphor drawn from the contemporary age that, in which Paul lived. Stewards were responsible for the welfare and the goods of the house. So for you fantasy people that went home last Sunday afternoon like I did with my boys and watched the third installment of, uh, I don't remember the name of it, whatever the Hobbit series is. When Paul talks about a steward, he's not talking about Baromir's father, the steward of the throne in the third Lord of the Rings sequel, who was an uncaring despot who usurped his role, who exercised rights which were not his to exercise. He was not king, he was a steward. He must get off the throne and realize it was not his. I love this qualification that Paul helps us understand that those that lead, those that rule, those that shepherd, they're stewards. No more, no less. He doesn't own the church. He doesn't own the ministry. This is Christ's church. This is the possession of God Himself who placed it in the care of under-shepherds to oversee, who will account to Him concerning the care that they render. And we could go to many cross-references here of the fearfulness in which these shepherds take tender care of the flock as stewards. He doesn't own the ministry. It's not His church. They're not, it's not their church. So as an elder, these are men of dignity standing among God's people, yes. As overseers standing above them to lead them in the right direction. But as stewards, they stand before the people on behalf of another and with God's people. My day, I, I said I was only going to highlight a couple of features about this. Let me give you a third for free. As, uh, lest you check out in this sermon and think, well, this is for elders, uh, doesn't, uh, uh, this doesn't speak to me wrong. You look at any qualification, you can go just about anywhere in the New Testament to find a command given to the believer in Jesus Christ. Though it's highlighted in the models, the shepherds, they're not under any greater requirement than any other believer. Yes, there's higher visibility, higher accountability. So we see the clear requirement of blamelessness, being above reproach. How about the thorough delineation of that requirement? What, what does it look like? Verses 6 through 9. 14 specifics on what it means to be blameless or above reproach. There's amazing detail. In contrast to the anti-elder that's on the front of your bulletin, these men stand against. Don't read that during the sermon. Read it in your own, on your own time this afternoon. But they, these, these men stand against the anti-elder that's highlighted in your bulletin. Notice where he starts. The starting point is, is it's a family affair. It starts with a family emphasis. Overseer must be above reproach as God's steward not, or excuse me, I, I jumped a line. Maybe if I get my glasses back, I'll uh, follow along. If a man is above reproach, verse 6, the husband of one wife. The first obvious feature is that God highlights a male leadership. God is no chauvinist, but He's vested leadership in the home and in the church in godly male leadership. But more specifically, not just male leadership, but how do we take this phrase, husband of one wife? 
there are at least six options of how, how commentators and Bible interpreters take this. That a man must be married, or if married, only one wife at a time. In other words, it forbids any polygamy. Third option is that uh, you can't have a divorced man servant in this office. A fourth is that uh, you can't be divorced and remarried. Fifth option, you can't be widowed. Or a sixth option, you, uh, you can't be widowed and remarried. I'm inclined to find none of these as what Paul is writing about to Titus. I'm inclined to see it as a man of one woman, one woman man, faithful to one wife, that he is not a womanizer. He's faithful in the marriage relationship, in other words. There are some really good articles that, uh, should you have time, I could point you to, whether it be Mike Canham's or uh, Bob Sosi. Years ago in uh, Bibliographa Sacra, which is the theological journal that Dallas Seminary puts out, they had highlighted an article by Ed Glasscock, which had an excellent explanation of this clause. How do we take what is translated in our English Bible as the husband of one wife. What does that mean? He says, this view holds that the translation husband of one wife is not the best understanding of the Greek phrase myas gunikos andra. How do we take those three words? But it should be translated a man of one woman or a one woman kind of man. This understanding emphasizes the character of the man rather than his marital status. Thus, even a single man, notice this, even a single man or a man who has been married only once must demonstrate that he's not a playboy or flirtatious, but that he's stable. He's got mature character toward his wife or other females. A man who demonstrates a character of loyalty and trustworthiness in such personal relationships is qualified in this area. He, being a one-woman type of man, can be placed in this high position and trusted to deal in maturity and with discretion in a situation involving female members. This view shifts the emphasis away from the event, because the way people usually use this argument is that uh, even if before conversion you were ever divorced, you're disqualified from, from this, or you're not married, so you can't serve as an elder. You're a single guy. This view shifts the emphasis away from the event that took place in a man's life before his conversion and properly concentrates on the character and the quality of his life at the time of his consideration for this high office, unquote. So that's the emphasis. You look at all these. These are character traits in the list. Why would there be something different in the list? I might note for us that this implies both inner and outer sexual purity. A lustful husband, whether or not he actually committed the physical adultery, commits it morally if he harbors sexual desire for a woman other than the wife that God has put him in covenant marriage with. Disqualified. Family emphasis is where we start. He's a one-woman sort of man, not a womanizer. Second of all, what is blamelessness? or irreproachable look like in the family. He's got children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Again, it seems like the, the first two qualities in the text are the most questioned as to how do we take this? How do we take the phrase? Because the way some people take this phrase, Children who believe, we're talking, well, unless your kids become Christians, you're disqualified from the office. It's the way a lot of them. Some dear friends hold this view. Is it believing children or simply faithful children? The first view is that they must come to share the Christian faith of the parents and adorn the faith with godly conduct. I've always wondered in, in that view, I, I have to go back and, and study it. What do you do with how we can't save our kids? 
You can preach the gospel to your kids. You can live the gospel, but at the end of the day, when you pray for their salvation, you're relying on a sovereign God to draw them to repentance and faith. The pastor, the elder, the shepherds cannot save their kids. The adjective pistis could be rendered either way, either Christian kids or faithful kids. I think if we're relying on what Paul said to Timothy in the other passage, the other list, when he says to Timothy that the overseer must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control and subjection with all dignity, 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, I think we, we need to think in that lens. In other words, his kids aren't wild and uncontrollable. How often have you either gone to a church or heard about, oh, they're, they're pastor's kids, they're wild. Sorry, he shouldn't be pastoring if he got wild kids. You know, they, they make a mockery of, oh, you're a PK. That's inconsistent with the qualifications God's given here. Though I don't believe that he is emphasizing that they be Christian kids, but faithful kids, I rely on what Paul said to to Timothy. And consistent with this view of them being faithful is the qualifying phrase that he uses right in this text, that they are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Use this part of the phrase to interpret the earlier part. The emphasis seems to be not the gossip surrounding one's parenting style, but more formal charges against your children are just, uh, they don't do anything uh, to bear up what you teach us in public. So you notice the, the context surrounding that word dissipation. Maybe your Bible translates that term debauchery. It speaks of reckless living. If you've got a PK that can be accused of reckless living, Paul uses this term dissipation and he sets it along intoxication in Ephesians 5.18. And the only other New Testament usage is by Peter in 1 Peter 4.4 where he talks about dissipation. That as believers in Jesus Christ, you avoid the excesses of dissipation as the unbelieving. Elders' kids, before they are redeemed, are still to be under control. So the charges of dissipation. How about rebellion? Notice that word in the phrase. Paul used rebellion to describe those unwilling to live under God's law. I think we'd, uh, we'd mentioned in uh, adult Sunday school in, in the morning, yeah, you, you want your kids to share your convictions, but at the end of the day, these are the house rules, like it or lump it. Chapter and verse, yeah, Dad. My house. Submission. Is there a submission? Not like the Cretans who reject the truth. In Titus 1, verse 10, we're told there are many rebellious men. The household of faith doesn't look like a house of rebellion, but a house of those submission is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the church in a microcosm of the church, what does the house look like? In submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Not rebellion. This word rebellion with the... Uh, where it's, uh, it's got a negative at the beginning saying it's not, and the rest of the word is the word we get submission, hupatasso from. Meaning that you arrange yourself. When, when a woman in the marriage relationship is told to submit to her husband or when the believers before that passage in Ephesians is told to submit to one another. You arrange yourself up underneath the authority structure to arrange yourself under submission, subjection. 
So when you look at leadership's kids, are they independent, ruling by their own world or somebody else's world? Undisciplined, disobedient. Elders' children must not, through attitude of rebellion or action of dissipation, bring disreproach on father ministry or the church. That's Paul's starting point, the family. Emphasizing the family. How can he manage the household of God if he doesn't manage his own house? Sober words. Sober requirements. Then in verse 7, he repeats the requirement again and then begins unpacking a further part of the list of what it means to be irreproachable. He starts with five negatives. He says, not, 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 not. Sometimes the best way to describe to people what something is is to tell them what it's not. When you find statements of affirmations and denial of the gospel or what we believe about scripture or biblical counseling or something, when we try to tell somebody what something is, it's helpful to say what it's not. What is somebody that is irreproachable? Well, it's not one like this, this, and this. And so he uses five negatives. We might think along the lines of personality qualifications as he says first of the list of not, he is not self-willed. It describes one who's stubborn and arrogant. This is a man who maintains his own opinion and asserts his own rights to the exclusion of the rights, feelings, and interests of others. You might put it this way. He doesn't listen. Never listens. His way or the highway, baby. If you don't like it, get out. And it's only other New Testament usage is of false teachers. False teachers are self-willed. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.10 of false teachers, those that claim to be shepherds of the flock but are not, they are daring and self-willed. Such men cannot be trusted to have the concerns of the Lord or the welfare of His people in mind. He must not be self-willed. Second of all, he must not be quick-tempered. Maybe your translation renders it hot-tempered. This is, the, again, the only usage of this word. And it describes one who is prone to the, the habit of life. It doesn't mean that he doesn't blow his cork once in a while and then repent of it. But his bent is towards anger. He's an angry person. Given to outbursts of wrath. Contentious. Anger is his usual response to stress and conflict and disagreement. Such a one is unable to promote harmony and peace that is to characterize the local assembly. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.13. He says, live at peace with one another. That's to be characteristic of life together. How is an angry, wrathful person going to harbor that? It doesn't mean that there aren't times where there is judgment calls where there is conflict because somebody wants to pursue their sin and needs to be confronted over it. To go along with a man's self-will is his hot temper. As he doesn't listen, he jumps to conclusions, he becomes offended, and defen- uh, becomes offended easily and defensive. This is not at the top of the list of the portrait of those that lead God's, pe- God's people. He's not self-willed. He's not quick-tempered. Thirdly, he's not addicted or given to wine. He's not a wine-bibber. Not a tippler. Speaks to drinking in excess and becoming a drunkard. Though your pastors have chosen to be abstinent, guys, to stay as far away and to not partake of alcohol, that's not what this is talking about. It's saying, saying that this, this man, uh, characteristic of his life is that uh, he's addicted to his substance. He's a drunkard. Don't tone it down as, as being a product. Well, his dad was, uh, was an alcoholic and he's, uh, you know, he must be genetic. No, he's a drunkard. That's what the Bible says. It's a sin against God. How's he going to model God's people a disciplined life? He can't be pugnacious or violent or given to blows. Literally, that term pugnacious 
is a striker from a word related to pugilist, a boxer. He wants to settle agreements by physical force, but it's not limited to hitting. This guy's a bully. He's got a combative personality, and he will manipulate you to see his way or not. Any physical means of manipulation or intimidation is pugnacious. And to conclude the list of five knots, five things that shepherds are not, not fond of sordid gain. In other words, greedy for money. He's not an embezzler or a pilferer. And having defined and expanded on the qualification of elders, what they aren't, in verse 8, he gives six positive, strong contrasts. I just told you what is not, Paul says, now I'll tell you what it is. Here's what godly leadership, shepherd elders look like. And he starts at the head of the positive list with hospitality. Might not be where you'd start. That's where God started. Hospitality. This is one of the many similar qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.2. Strictly meaning stranger loving. He's a stranger lover. You know, with a foreigner, somebody you don't know, you aren't well acquainted with, like your spouse that you, that you sleep with, or your kids that you share the dinner table with, that you're intimately acquainted with, you entertain strangers, there's no family obligation, there's no bloodlines to make you feel obligated, there's no, there's no payback, no human reason to love, that's why God makes it a list, on the list of His qualification. Because it exhibits the love of God. I've mentioned that with leaders, there's no higher responsibility than any other Christian. Just a higher accountability. Case in point, hospitality. This is such a practical expression of love that is an obligation of every believer. In Romans 12 and verse 13 we are told to be practiced in hospitality. What is body life supposed to be like? You having people in your kitchen? You getting in their kitchen? Not hospitable. You're not practicing body life. Top of God's list of the positive qualifications of irreproachable is that we'd be stranger loving. I've always loved the writer of Hebrews in us kind of dangling the carrot before our nose as to one of the motives, one of the rationales. Why do, you, why do you have people in? Why do you show the love of Christ to people you never know? You might have entertained angels unaware. Hebrews 13.2 Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now it doesn't say, now go look in, uh, you know, pull up their coat Tails to see if they've got wings sprouting out from under it as if they've got uh, wings. If it were a biblical portrait, it'd have six wings with two he flew and two he covered his face. Anyways, another discussion. Be hospitable. Ready to befriend and lodge the destitute and the traveling or persecuted believers. Cross-reference 1 Peter 4.9 on that. Leaders just lead you in the way, showing how the body works. How does the body of Christ work? It gets involved in lives. They get in your kitchen and you get in theirs. This was part of Hebrew society, to take in traveling strangers. But I've got to tell you, this grace has fallen on hard times. In our day of privacy and individuality that are valued above community, And I'm not going to throw out a, a Clinton of it. it takes a community to grow a child, or however it goes, the, the phrase, but uh, it does take a community to raise a church family. Newtown Bible Church, do something to stem the tide in our day and age. Be a lover of strangers. Be hospitable. 
And not only be a lover of stranger, he says, the, the second on the list, a lover of what is good. He's ready to do what's beneficial to others, whatever it is, wherever he can. Dot, dot, dot. You fill in the list. Then he moves to more mental, uh, more mental qualification. He says that elders, those that are above reproach, they're not self-willed, they're not quick-tempered, they're not addicted to wine, they're not pugnacious, they're not fond of sordid gain. However, they are hospitable, they love strangers, they love what is good. And you notice that next word. They're sensible. Sober-minded. They're of a sound mind. They're discreet. They're sane. This too is in Timothy, the, the list to Timothy. But how does Paul develop this in this sensibility in the church that Titus was to go to all these churches? He was to appoint elders in each of them. He says, make sure you instruct the older men to be sensible to be sane. Make sure you instruct the older women who to teach the younger woman to possess this trait. Notice there, Titus 2.5, what are the older who are coming alongside the younger in their discipleship? To be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands. Teach them to be in the right mind, to be prudent, thoughtful, self-controlled. That we don't consider somebody in church leadership in faithful biblical ministry who doesn't have some measure of an orderly life and self-control. Then you'll notice how he finishes his list. Some of the more spiritual or moral issues. He says they're just. Just. Just has a wide range of meaning based on whatever context it's used in. When we think about justice, there's only one person that perfectly fleshes this out. That is the perfect portrait, the perfect model of just, justice. That is God, the righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4.8. And He is the one as the righteous judge that brings righteous judgment into His children's lives as they follow in faith and obedience. Here, the tweaking is probably along the lines of being honest, fair, and, and good in their dealings with others. In other words, he's good to do business with. He's to be trusted in delicate matters and unswayed by personal interests or social pressure. He's going to do the right thing, whether, whether the majority follows it or not. It's going to be just. They've got to make sure to be devout as well, or holy this speaks of a life in conformity to what God says and does. It describes those who are pious, who are pure and clean in accord with God's commands. We're talking about those dedicated to the glory of God. That is the charge that they trumpet. They're brought into conformity to His will and His purpose. In 1 Timothy 2.8, we're told that men are to pray in every place, lifting up these kind of hands, holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Who are you to be professing to worship God with your lips when your life is in shambles and in disunity and wrath and dissension? Paul wasn't instructing Timothy when he says that in 1 Timothy 2.8, he's not concerned about in, in song service whether you raise your hands or keep them down or if you strum on the pew in front of you, but are they holy hands that you're lifting up to the Lord? Are they characteristic of your heart? That you are devout? Notice he says that these men are to be self-controlled. The adjective only re occurs here in the New Testament, but the noun is a little more common means to possess power over yourself. Especially moral strength to curb and master your own sinful drives. You are the master of your total depravity through faith in Christ. You're exercising control to put off your sin and put on righteous, 
righteousness to the glory of God. You're, you're, you're going to be replacing sinful patterns of life with godly ones. No man in Scripture better modeled this than the man Joseph. You remember the account in Genesis 39? You know, again, think of an elder being a steward, as we're told by Paul to Titus, a steward. Joseph was a steward. And Potiphar's wife comes to him and seduces him and he leaves because he's a man of self-control. He didn't care if he left his clothes in her hands. He was getting out of Dodge, baby. Getting out of Dodge. Getting out of town. Genesis 3, 7 through 9 gives us that account. But you'll notice how in the latter chapters of Genesis, it didn't stop there. This marked his life. This was characteristic. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, dirty, rotten scoundrels, right? And when he's met face to face to give them food and grain, you'd expect, now it's the time to get them. Get even, baby. What's his response? It's one of self-control. You mentioned it for... Oh, you mentioned it. Yeah, that's good English. You, you brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It was God's truth that caused him to rely on and to elicit self-control. Self-control is used of an athlete's disciplined training regime as Paul writes to the Corinthians. He also writes to the Corinthians about mastering their sexual desires. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, there's our word self-control. Ultimately, it's a product of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that the gospel is the center, central focus of all discipleship counseling? Because believers, they might be able to change on the surface level and do a little behavior modification and whatnot, but it's not sanctification. The gospel is the center to our passions and mastering and exhibiting self-control. It's fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.23. Uh, but you'll notice that it's not an automatic trait. It's not an automatic static grace, but one needing cultivation. We learn how to be self-controlled. We learn how to put off sinful patterns and replace them with godly ones. We discipline ourselves unto godliness. Needs cultivation, needs develop. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 8, uh, that this grace needs to be developed more and more over time. How does Paul finalize his list in verse number 9 of what shepherd elders are to manifest? He gives a functional quality. And this functional quality in verse 9 is what prepares us for the rest of the chapter and what's to follow. The biggest thing that separates the ministry office of eldership and deacons is right here in this verse. That's the ministry of the Word, teaching. He says, They are to be men who hold fast the faithful Word which is in accord with the teaching. And here's the intent, so that he'll be able to exhort and refute. Overseers must cling to the Word. they got nothing else. Nothing else in their arsenal. The living and active Word, that's all we've gotten. The Spirit and the Word. Cling to it. Choosing it over all the other allurements that many church leaders rely upon in our day and age. Because sinners are going to be intolerant of faithful biblical ministry. They're going to be intolerant of uncomfortable truths. It's to be expected. On the one hand, they'll want to hear comfortable lies. They might seek what's sensational or entertaining or ego-building or non-threatening and popular. But God's leaders that are Preach what's dictated by God. Cling to it. Not the crowd that you aim to please, but the king. 
I've been thrilled to just be a simple bug on the wall watching as God's developing biblical counseling in people's lives. And as I'm living in that world right now, an illustration came from a psychiatrist and Christian writer, John White, who penned some compelling words. Uh, when this was written, uh, well, back in 1982, that's 32 years ago, not 15 like he says. But in this article, he said, until about 15 years ago, psychology was seen by most Christians as hostile to the gospel. But today, let someone who professes the name of Jesus baptize secular psychology and present it as something compatible with scriptural truth, and most Christians are happy to swallow theological hemlock in the form of psychological insights. So he says, over the last 15 years, which is now 32 years ago, it's been a tendency for churches to place increasing reliance on trained pastoral counselors. To me, this is the psychologist speaking to us. He says, to me, it seems to suggest weakness or indifference to expository preaching within evangelical churches. Why do we have to turn to human sciences at all? Why? Because for years we failed to expound the whole Scripture. Because from our weakened exposition and our superficial topical talks, we've produced a generation of Christian sheep having no shepherd. And now we're damning ourselves more deepening than ever our recourse to the wisdom of the world. Why do I, as a psychiatrist, and what my psychologist colleagues do in their research or their counseling, it's of infinitely less value to distressing Christians than what God says in His Word. But pastoral shepherds, like the sheep they guide, are following, if I might change my metaphor for a moment, that's still Him speaking, they're following a new Pied Piper of Hamlin who is leading them into the dark caves of humanistic hedonism. A few of us are deeply involved in the human sciences, feel like voices crying in a godless wilderness of humanism while the churches turn to humanistic psychology as a substitute for the gospel of God's grace. So as we think about biblical ministry as it's played out in the church, and as Paul addresses Timothy, as Paul addresses Titus, as he gives us the pastoral epistles on how to conduct biblical ministry in the church together, and as he addresses the shepherd elders, he says, you cling to the word. We've got nothing else in our arsenal. And to that same problem that eludes so many churches, John Stott writes these words. He says, expository preaching is a most exacting discipline. Perhaps it's why it's so rare only those who undertake it who are prepared to follow the example of the apostles and say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word to serve tables, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, Acts 6. The systematic preaching of the Word is impossible without the systematic study of it. It will not be enough to skim through a few verses in daily Bible reading, nor to study a passage only when we have to preach from it. No, we brothers must daily soak ourselves in the Scriptures. We must not just study as through a microscope the linguistic minutia of a few verses, but take our telescope and scan the wide expanses of God's Word assimilating its grand theme of divine sovereignty and the redemption of mankind. And then Stott relies on Spurgeon. He, he says, It is blessed, wrote C.H. Spurgeon, to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is biblene and the very essence of the Bible flows from you, unquote. So why is so much leadership in churches secular words of man's making rather than how to handle the book? Clinging to the Word. This was not the content of false teachers, but it is to be all that biblical church leadership engulfs itself in. Placing ourselves in the partnership with the author and the subject of Scripture. Paul says, cling tightly to the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. Hold on to the teaching imparted to you by others. In this case, it was the Apostle Paul. 
That's why so much care and precision and teaching and instruction needs to, as God raises up elders in our midst to come alongside to develop that giftedness, to develop the handling of the Word on how to expose people to the truth of the Word and to bring the Word to bear upon every situation of life. And as you hold firmly, you will be equipped to do two things. Exhort and refute. An elder must be able to encourage believers in the healthful teaching of true doctrine. It's one of the essential functions of expository preaching. When Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. Be in season, out of season. In other words, when they like it, when they don't. When it's easy for them to sit back and enjoy, and when it's hard and you step on their toes, preach the Word in season, out of season. Because the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine. They'll accumulate teachers for their itching ears. So cling to the Word. And as you exhort them in the truth, it'll help protect the people from the inroads of false teachers and error. Guard the sheep. You can't guard untaught sheep. It's impossible. They're going to nibble them way, their way in, from one error to the other. It, beca- it begets health. Transmitting the truth and correcting the view of reality. So biblical leadership must always promote truth in their exhortation and ward off error in their refute. That word refute literally means to answer back. Anti-lego. Speak against. The only other place Paul used this is in Romans 10.21 when he quotes from Isaiah about obstinate people. And he said they are those who talk back. The talker backers. So what are elders? The talker backers to the talker backers. Refute! People think it's unloving to confront error. It is unloving to not do so. Bring to light. Expose. Convince. Reprove. Rebuke. Punish. Those who are not subject to the truth. Those that live independent from the truth. Those who are undisciplined and disobedient. This too is an essential function of preaching. That is why an elder must be able to teach. So that he can exhort. So that they can refute. I understand not all overseers or elders have the same visible performance as they serve together in the church. Typically, there's one pastor teacher as a unique situation where there's a first among equals, but all are able to teach, all are able to perform the duty when called upon. All have the ability to handle the word. That's an indispensable matter for elders to consume themselves with. Not all are equally gifted or effective in teaching, nor privileged to the full time ministry of getting a paycheck for doing so. They've got to fit in their eldering around. What brings home the bacon? But what about the rest of you? How are you individually abounding in such graces as we find in this list before us? We've had handouts in the book nook for a year or so that kind of goes down through this list and the list to Timothy kind of fleshing out. If you haven't grabbed a copy, I'd encourage you to take a copy home with you. Pray fervently and daily for the development process here at our church, knowing that our health as a church and our advancement and our expansion in faithful biblical ministry depends on it. We don't make elders. We develop them after recognizing and then affirming by the church. I was told recently of a not too unique church experience just last week of somebody visiting a church fraught with so many issues. You can trace most of the issues of a church to a failure in leadership. Pray even in your prayers for an inroad to come alongside ministries that aren't structured in a way like Paul writes to Titus about. This is one of the biggest problems in churches far and near 
But we have a, the promise of God blessing His Word as it's brought to bear on ministry and relied upon and lived out. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank You for Your sufficient Word. That which teaches us how to lead ministry in a way that brings You supreme glory and us good as the church of the redeemed. We thank You that it is inerrant. You've made no mistakes in your qualification list. This is the inspired Word of God that we are to bear up under, to see that it's fleshed out in our individual lives as part of the church and in our public ministry. God, help us to excel still more and use your truth as we search and submit to it. And extracting from our lives faithfulness. We'll give you all the praise for what you accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen.